So Christmas time this year, Stella and Samara, our seven and 11-year-old daughters, each got one of these little video game mini arcades. You ever seen these things before? Uh, they opened that thing up, took the paper off, their eyes lit up. They were so excited to have this little video game console. Even if you had never played a video game before in your life, even if you've never seen a real-size arcade, you would have at your hands 20 games loaded into this little thing, and you could play without quarters or anything. It's, it's fantastic. Like, you would never have had to play before to enjoy this little mini video game arcade. But how many of you have ever played a real stand-up arcade game before, like in an arcade. Yes, lots of hands just went up. Uh, when I was a kid in the early 80s, we would save up our change, my friends and I, and we would go to either the pizza place, which had a bunch of those full-size games, or to an arcade at the mall if someone could drive us, uh, and we would play video games, Donkey Kong and Frogger and Galactica and Space Invaders and those types of games. If you look closely at the console that Jess is gonna put up there, You'll see that, yes, I took a photo earlier today. Uh, you'll see that it's got the classic games. It's got Pac-Man and Galactica and there's Bowser on there and all kinds of other fun games from the 80s. And that is extra fun for me because there's a layer of nostalgia, right? Like my kids are seeing those games probably for the first time on this little mini console, but when I play it, when, I, when they go to bed, um, I'm thinking back to when I first played those games with my head in a giant console. Um, I can re-experience some of the joy of being with my friends as we rode our bikes and have our money saved up in our pockets and go to the arcade and eat that really horrible food that they have at arcades. And the smell is, or, you know, it's kind of like dingy light and it sounds like a casino, although I didn't know that then. And then, you know, when you walk out, you're dilated pupils shine from the sunshine. Anyway, it's just the whole experience comes back. There's a different layer of enjoyment and meaning and memory that I have when I see this thing than they have. And there's actually more to this. If Jess goes to the next slide, if you notice on the photo there, it's the Palace Arcade. How many of you have seen Stranger Things? Yeah, this is a Stranger Things themed video game. So the Palace Arcade is where the kids in the Stranger Things show go. If you haven't seen the show, it's set in the 80s. And they go to this place, and up on the right, upper right-hand side, that's supposed to be 11. That's her face. And, and if you go to the next photo, you've got all the Stranger Things kids there with even like a Demigorgon thing on there. So uh, my kids, Stella and Samara, at least, have never seen Stranger Things. And so there's a third layer of enjoyment that I get because of what they've done in some of these games like Pac-Man and Galactica is they've replaced some of the bad guys with Stranger Things monsters coming. So my kids probably just think, this is a great video game and I'm playing it, but I've got like triple, quadruple layers of enjoyment to playing this game, having watched that show, having grown up playing these games in the 80s on a little console like this or a full-size console. Now today is Epiphany. And Epiphany is all about Jesus being revealed in his true identity to the people. And the typical Epiphany passages include Luke 24 and the road to Emmaus when uh, the two people are mourning Jesus' death and he shows up walking on the road. They have no idea it's him. And then over a meal with food, he, he reveals himself and their hearts are warmed. They're like, we were totally with Jesus. Or, or, or there's the, the baptism of Jesus in, in Matthew chapter three where hev the heavens are opened and, and the Father and the Spirit are there affirming who Jesus is and his true identity in front of people. 
And one of the most famous epiphany stories is the one I get to preach on right now, the story of the Magi coming to visit in Matthew 2. As in my opening illustration with the mini video game arcade, this story contains layers and layers of meaning. And as we work through the passage together, I'll try to point out three specific epiphanies I believe that the story communicates. Would you pray with me, and then we'll get into the word. Lord, it seems fitting that on this Epiphany Sunday, we should pray for eyes to see, for ears to hear, for hearts to be soft, pliable for your hands, and I pray for courage. I pray for the courage to react wisely and obediently when we hear what it is you want to say, when we see what it is you want to show us, when we're convicted in our hearts by what it is you will say to us, Lord. So open your word to us. Lord, let there be a fresh epiphany for us in this moment. Amen. I'll invite you to stand as we read uh, Matthew 2, 1 through 12. The story goes like this. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem of Judea, are by no means among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will will shepherd my people Israel. Now, Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search for the child. And when you found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. And after hearing the king, they went on their way. And the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place that the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, And they fell to the ground, and they worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country on another way. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we pick up the story after Jesus has been born in Bethlehem, and we're introduced to antagonists and protagonists, right? Good old English teacher talk for all the teachers out there. Now, what I want to do is resist labeling who is the antagonists and who are the protagonists in the story. That's kind of one of the layers. So let's just take them as they come in the order that they come, right? So first, we're introduced to King Herod. He is a notorious historical figure whose exploits are written 
by all kinds of ancient historians. And in those writings, we learn that Herod was appointed king of Israel, king of the Jews, by the Roman Empire. And, and he was sort of a puppet king in his role. The emperor wanted this guy there to do two things. One was to maintain order among the Jewish people to please the empire. That was one of his jobs. The other job that Herod had was to maintain some semblance of national pride and religious freedoms to please the Israelites. So here's this impossible job that Herod has to please the empire and to please the Israelites also that everyone just keeps paying their taxes to Caesar. Herod is best known as an insanely violent and paranoid man. He was obsessed with keeping his power as king, and he was insecure because he was not of full Jewish blood. In fact, he wasn't even from the line of David, which meant that every time his people saw him as the king, they knew in the back of their minds, this guy is not the Messiah, and this guy is just put there by Rome, and therefore he represents the oppressor. He is a living, breathing reminder that it is Rome who puts the king of Israel on the throne and not God, and that ruffled the feathers of everyone in the nation. The paranoia drove Herod to kill some of his own sons because he thought they were threats to his power. And one historian, I believe actually uh, one of the Caesars said, that's better to be a pig than one of Herod's sons. But before we label Herod the protagonist or the antagonist, we need to meet the second group of people in the story, and that's the Magi. Magi were well-known in antiquity as people who could read the stars, and today we might call a Magi kind of a mixture of an astronomer and an astrologer. Let's look at that first word, astronomy, uh, it comes from two roots, asteron, which means star, and namas, which means law. So we get astronomy, kind of the law of the stars. So we, we're looking at the stars and, and, and how they work. And then that second word, astrology, uh, also comes from the word namas, uh, uh, asteron, star, and logos, word. So uh, astrology is, is getting a message from the stars. Astronomy and astrology. In Jewish law and customs, practicing the arts that the Magi practiced was sinful. It was linked with pagan idolatry. Um, Magi are negatively mentioned at least three times in Scripture, uh, twice in the book of Acts in chapter 9 and chapter 13. And in the book of Daniel, when the king has a dream he wants interpreted, he calls the Magi, who can't interpret the dream. Only God can interpret the dream through his servant Daniel. All that is to say, if you, weren't, if you were a first century Jewish person reading this story for the very first time as Matthew's original audience, you would be inclined to label Herod, the king of the Jews, the king of Israel, as the protagonist, as the good guy in the story, and you would expect, um, you, you would expect that. And then the problem is, is that so often in the case of good stories and in the case of real life, we are most teachable and most influenced when our assumptions are turned on their heads. So assumptions beware, because this story tells us that these pagan magi have followed a star 
all the way from the Middle East, most likely modern-day Iraq and Iran, that, that general area of the world, which sort of adds a layer uh, t- when you consider the recent escalations in our current geopolitical uh, situation. So they, st- they follow the star from Arabia, from the Middle East, all the way to Jerusalem. And they do this because their craft of reading the stars has told them that a new king of the Jews has been born in Israel. Now, people have debated over history, like what is this star that they saw in the sky? Some of the best evidence shows that in the year 7-6 BCE, the planets Jupiter and Saturn were aligned. Jupiter was the star of kings, according to the Magi. And according to the Magi, uh, Saturn was the star, uh, or they they thought the planets were stars, uh, of the Sabbath, or the Jews. And so when these two celestial bodies align, they think king of the Jews, ta-da, this is what it's telling us, we'll go. Now, whatever the source, Matthew wants to say that God has used this phenomenon or this miraculous star to lead these magi to Israel, to Jesus. So Herod is troubled by this news, and he calls together the chief priests and the scholars of the Bible to find out, hey, where is this supposed to happen? Is this a thing? You know, these magi are here. I haven't been to Sunday school in a while. Can you Bible scholars help me out? The king of the Jews doesn't want to look stupid. And so they tell him, well, it says in Bethlehem, it's in the prophet Micah right here. Okay, yeah, very, very good. That's what I, I I thought I knew that. Uh, So anyway, with this new information, the Magi continue on their journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, where they find Mary and they find the child Jesus. And they, they pay homage to him, as one would do when you're in the presence of a king. They fall to their knees and they offer him gifts fit for a king, not for a child, gold and frankincense and myrrh. What do you do with that stuff? Uh, But that's fit for a king. So the first layer of epiphany in the story, and I would say probably the main point that Matthew is trying to make, is that Jesus' identity. This story is telling us that Jesus is the king that Israel had been waiting for. And one more layer on this epiphany, um, he's the savior of the world. Remember just moments ago, Lucy did a fantastic job reading us Isaiah 60 one through six, is a promise that one day God would accomplish Israel's mission to be a blessing to the nations by sending a Messiah who would do the job of Israel himself. And all the good news is is not only that, that, that Jesus is this figure of salvation of God with us for Israel, but he is God with us and the savior of the entire world. Even those who everyone might assume are outsiders, like the prostitute Rahab, or Ruth, who was a Moabite, the sworn enemies of Israel, or Bathsheba, who was the wife of Uriah, whom David took advantage of. All three of those women are in the genealogy of Jesus in the previous chapter to this one, in Matthew chapter 1. It's as if even before being born, Jesus was meant to be a universal savior, breaking down the walls of just Israel. It is for everyone. There's the pagan magi. There's grubby shepherds in in Luke chapter two. There's 
old widows like Anna, who everyone thought was crazy. She would hung out at church all day. And then she has a prophecy for Jesus. There's Mary Magdalene. There's the woman at the well. All sinful people, right? And then there's gluttonous and greedful Zacchaeus and his like, right? Jesus is, he's reaching out to those people. The epiphany of, of this story is that Jesus is the King of kings, the Savior of all. And that should, and I hope it does, encourage us because we need to be reminded that Jesus isn't just the Savior of the people sitting around you, but yes, even you. And yes, he really knows you. Yes, even that. Yes, even that. We need to be encouraged of that at a regular basis that what's being revealed here is that Jesus is a savior even unto you and I. And not only should this encourage us, it should also challenge us because deep down, if we're being honest, do we not believe that there are just some people in our lives that we know of that really shouldn't be saved by Jesus or really can't be saved by Jesus or really would never want to be saved by Jesus, right? It should challenge us because if we see Jesus reaching out to these types of folks who everyone had written off as evil and corrupt, then maybe there's room for us to at least pray for the sinister people that we've written off in our own lives. Keep in mind the amazing grace of this story. God sent these pagan magi a sign even though they worshiped other gods. God was seeking the magi even when they were not looking for Yahweh by name. They were just looking for information. We'll scan the skies. We'll do what the stars tell us. But God was saying, okay, you're looking up there instead of here. You're looking up there instead of here. You're looking out there instead of here. Okay, I'll come to you. I will reveal myself where you, where you are looking. That's amazing grace. That's pure grace. By the way, this isn't like, oh, cool, I can look at horoscopes now and go to my palm reader and fortune teller hoping that God will tell you something. That's, that's not the point of this message. That, that's not one of the epiphanies. Uh, chances are, if you go one of those routes, you'll get a revelation. It just probably won't be from God. The point of the Magi and the star is that they were obedient to what they had. They were obedient to what they have. You have more than just the stars in the sky, right? Sorry, you've, I've just ruined it for you, like, I'm preaching now. You have more than that, but what they had, they had, and they were faithful and obedient to it, and the star could only take them so far. The star brought them to Jerusalem. It was kind of vague. It got them to the general spot, but from there they needed scripture, and it was scripture that pointed to the location of Jesus in Bethlehem, and I think all this leads us to a second layer the second epiphany of the story. It's the epiphany or the revelation of what true worship looks like. Jesus is the savior of all. He's the universal savior. But Jesus is not a universalist. He invites everybody to come and to trust him for eternal life. But as far as we can tell, not everybody says okay to that. 
In, in the story, we see just a surprising reversal of roles. Herod, the king of the Jews, along with all of the Bible scholars, they must have assumed, as would any first century reader, that God was with them. Herod and the Bible scholars, uh, king of God's people and interpreters of God's law, who could be closer to God than the king of God's people and the interpreters of God's law? Like, it would just, you would just assume that they would be the closest ones to God. And yet what we see is that when God reveals himself in Scripture and is born right under their noses, they didn't respond with joy, and they didn't respond with obedience. They didn't even respond with genuine curiosity enough to go and see for themselves. Instead, Herod was way too concerned with maintaining his own power and position And here's another layer of the second epiphany. If you were to ask your average first century Jewish person, what is the defining moment in Israel's history? What do you think they would say? What one word event? It's also a book of the Bible. It's also the second book of the Bible. Anybody? The Exodus. Yes, they would say the Exodus. Through the courage of the Hebrew midwives and through God's providence, Yahweh preserves Moses from a genocidal Pharaoh. Then he works through Moses to deliver the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt. And from there, under Moses' leadership, the Hebrews become Israel, the people of God, on their way to the promised land. Now in Matthew's gospel, If you pay attention, it doesn't even take close attention, just pay attention to Matthew's gospel, you'll see that one of the things he's doing, the way he's crafted to present Jesus to us is as a new and better Moses. So just as Moses passed through the Red Sea and the waters of chaos were calmed by God so that new life, that a new age could begin on the other side, the the age of Israel and coming into the land, so Jesus in, in Matthew's gospel is in the waters, baptized, and the heavens are open, and it is a new beginning for humanity, all those who are in Christ. Just as the people failed by worshiping other gods when Israel was wandering through the wilderness after the exodus, so in Matthew 4, uh, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, but there he does not fail. He wins the victory. He is the new and better Moses, the new and complete Adam, the new and glorified human being. And just as Moses went up on a mountain to receive the law from God to bless the people, so in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus goes up on a mountain and he's revealed as the one who is the author of the law, the giver of life. Okay? Now, Before Jesus can grow up and be this new and better Moses, he, like Moses, has his life put in danger when he's but a small child. As a young child living not in Egypt, but in the promised land, Jesus is threatened by not Pharaoh, but by Herod, the king of the Jews. Herod slaughters the innocent male children under two years old to rid any kind of threat to his throne. And being warned by an angel, Joseph and Mary escape with Jesus to, of all places, irony upon irony, from the promised land, they take the Lord to Egypt. 
an amazing story. And so we see the truth, the protagonists and the antagonists are revealed. And they're defined not by their religious affiliation or their ethnicity or their nationality. They're defined by who and how they worship. Herod is shown to be a villain. The Bible scholars are shown to be full of faith when they, I'm sorry, they're shown to be on the outside. They're supposed to be the insiders, and they're shown to be on the outside by the way that they respond to what they've learned about Jesus. Meanwhile, foreigners from Babylon, another oppressing nation in Israel's history, pagan, stargazers, different language, different culture, different customs, definitely different religion. These foreigners are shown to be faithful when they receive the same information that Herod and the Bible scholars have and they didn't take it for granted. The Magi show us that on the one hand, never underestimate who God might be reaching out to. If we call ourselves followers of Jesus, our hearts should be set This is convicting, but they should be set on sharing the good news of Jesus with the world. All kinds of people, even those people who follow other religions or non-religious, as most of our community friends are. Even our friends that practice practices that contradict the way of Jesus. We're all, every single living, breathing person is invited to follow Jesus no matter what our religious or social or cultural or moral background. We're all invited to begin following the Savior. The Magi, what makes them faithful is that they respond in worship. It seems like what they wanted to do was follow the stars to figure out if the king of the Jews was really there. They brought gifts. It seems like what they came to do was do the honorable thing of paying homage to a new king in a foreign land. That's what they came to do. But then something happened when they met the living Jesus, and they went back another way. Now, when it says that they went back another way, of course, what what it means is that they took a different road to avoid Herod. Right? They took a different way. But in Matthew's gospel, the way, that was before the Mandalorian, it was the way in Matthew's gospel first. <laughs> that phrase, the way, in Matthew and especially in Mark, is, is, a, is, is a buzzword, is a technical term for following Jesus, following on the narrow way, for example. So here the Magi encounter the living Jesus, the true king, and they leave traveling a different way. That's what worship is. Worship is an encounter with the living God and then living differently because of it. It's recognizing God's amazing gift of grace. You know, every, every single one of us had a star in our lives that led us to the Lord. Maybe your star was just kind of like boring like your parents or something, but like whatever it is, everybody got led somehow to sit in this place right now listening to, to the scriptures. Like, what grace? We didn't earn that or, or deserve it. Or I, I, what happened for me, I wasn't seeking it. That's for darn sure. 
Ask me about that later. This is where I think the passage gets most personal. And it's the third epiphany of the story. I think that this story asks us to look honestly at our own hearts. When we, when we pay attention to the narrative, we're confronted with two, in general, states of a human heart. Herod and the religious leaders have all the right information. They, they simply lack devotion, though. They lack conviction. They have all the information, but their hearts aren't in it. On the outside, they represent God and country, but when confronted with the actual king that they are supposedly serving, when they're confronted with God born in Bethlehem, they don't even have the heart or the curiosity to go see for themselves. Like, what if I know it sounds weird, and I, I can be a skeptical person. I can sort of see how they felt, but like, man, if there's a chance Jesus was actually up in Ferndale or something, I think I would go check it out. Their lack of actions show that their hearts are, are really set, and this is a stretch. This is what I think. I think their hearts are really set on their idea of who God is, and their idea that their God is super wrapped up in their country. And I think that they've married nationalism and their religion together to the point that they're unable to see that God might come as a vulnerable child. How often do we see high-profile, self-proclaimed followers of Jesus whether it's in politics or in their personal behaviors or in their public statements, how often do we see those people say all the right things It seem to reveal a devotion to someone other than Jesus? At least the Jesus of the Gospels I've been reading. How often does it seem that we see people who seem to say the right-sounding words, like they say Bible a lot and prayer a lot and God a fair amount of times. Um, They talk a lot about morals. But they do it with unchristlike character. How often do we see that? It's too often we see that in the media. We see characters who are self-proclaimed representing God bullying and disregarding women and minorities and human life that doesn't fit their mold of what human life ought to be like. Now it is easy, and that's why I started there, to point fingers at high-profile people, whether they're religious people, whether they're liberal people or conservative people or good old middle-of-the-road people. It's easy to point fingers at high-profile people. And I think as followers of Jesus, if other people are going to say, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus, and they're going to behave like not a follower of Jesus in the public light, like, that's our job, sort of critique, like, hey, you're one of us, so shut up, because like, I'm not like that, please, you know, we're not (laughs) the same. This part of our job is to critique and to challenge each other, and I hope you'll do that for me. Um, Some of you do, yeah, that's good. 
But this passage demands that we look at ourselves in the mirror as well. It demands it. I mean, this, this is a mirror for us. You know, verse two of this passage, it says, all Jerusalem was troubled. It said, Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Why do you think that might be? Whenever a new king comes to town, a new sovereign, someone is, it, it, it just, it shakes the whole foundation. It shakes the whole foundation. All of our assumptions about what good is and evil and that I'm good, I thought I was good before in this system that I'm living in, I'm a good guy. But when Jesus comes back like, oh my gosh, oh yeah, I see that. Oh, I'm not that, I don't like that feeling of being convicted. And so if a new king really comes to town, do you know what that means for people that have been oppressed by Babylonians and Persians and Greeks and Romans over centuries and centuries? You know the last thing that a normal Israelite first century person wants is another revolution. And that's what a new king would mean. And that's really what a new king means for a follower of Jesus. It's like someone is shaking up our foundation and saying, actually, you're not the king, you're not the queen of your life. Jesus is. The fact is that Jesus has come. That's what the epiphany is. The king of heaven has enfleshed himself, and he's made his priorities known to us. He's shown us that the way up in life is down. He's shown us that the way of heavenly rule is to get on your knees and wash people's feet. That the way to life is really to give your life in the service of God and neighbor. The fact is that Jesus has come and shown us these things. The Savior of the world bids us come and follow. Come and turn away from a life that's situated toward self-preservation and empire building. And none of us think that we're empire people, right? But even our personal empires, how much of our life is invested in my stuff, in my future, in my family, in my neighborhood, in my backyard, right? Look at the Magi. They didn't have a fraction of what we know about Jesus when they started following the star. But just on the hunch that there might be something worth seeing They risked the danger of traveling vast distances. Their journey was costly, both financially and potentially deadly. They remained humble and open to learning from other people when they got to Jerusalem. Hey, teach us, where's this kid supposed to come from? And when they saw that God had guided them with a star to the house of Bethlehem, the Magi rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Eugene Peterson puts it as, they could hardly contain themselves. They knelt in worship, they gave up their treasures, they left that place, changed people because they had encountered Jesus. This passage makes me uncomfortable, but I believe, and I'm telling this to you, it is not meant to shame us. That's not the way of Jesus. It's not meant to shame you, and it's not meant to discourage you, like, oh, I'm so far from where I need to be. That's so American. Uh, That's not the way either. This passage leaves us with two equally fantastic responses. We can rejoice if we resonate right now. If you resonate with the Magi, you can be thankful that you find your heart 
fully devoted, or devo- not devoted, devoted, those Freudian slippers, I think, mean, uh, fully devoted and full of joy in Jesus. If you feel that recently, thank the Lord. That is fantastic. This passage is good news, and it's also good news if that is not the state that you find yourself in. If we're convicted by the story, wishing that we had more love, more courage to break free from the shackles of our own search for comfort or our own fears or false allegiances, then the good news of the story is we can ask for help. Because if God is going to send a star all the way to Arabia to get some magi to come see Jesus, think of what he's going to do for you too. Can you imagine God not wanting to answer a prayer? Like, Lord, could you help me love you more and be devoted to you more and love my neighbor more? Can you imagine a, a, the, the God that I read about in this book saying, ah, actually, that's not a very good prayer. Such good news. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for revealing yourself to us in so many different ways. Thank you for this story. Lord, I thank you for the way that it convicts but also grants such hope, comfort. I thank you that you are uh, tirelessly pursuing people, extravagantly pursuing you, (laughs) even using the celestial bodies, the stars and the planets to draw people to yourself. Lord, whether we are here today full of joy and full of devotion or feeling far from you, I pray that you would take each of us where we are at and by the power of your spirit draw us steps closer to you. Lord, would you open up our hearts to have more capacity to love? Would you heal us from those fears and those blocks we might have put up because of past pain or being let down, those things that prevent us from really giving ourselves because we're afraid of being hurt. Lord, would you break the chains of shame that weigh so many of us down? Shame of past things, Shame of the way that we think today. Shame of the way we think we are. Lord, help us to follow you on the way. The way of life. 